0: That is the sound you never want to hear. It's the sound of the warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. When you hear that sound, it means you are in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, and I do this podcast because I was one mile from the nuclear reactor at Three Mile Island when the accident happened there in 1979. So I take all this nuclear stuff really personally. Later in the podcast, you'll learn from one of our top anti-nuclear experts, Kevin Camps of Beyond Nuclear, about why nuclear waste is so dangerous, how we got ourselves into the current problems of nuclear being like an apartment building built without toilets, and hear a radically spiritual concept of what it will take to ensure the safety of future generations from this nuclear menace. Today is Tuesday, August 7, 2012, and here is the week's nuclear news. This is a big woohoo that just came in half an hour before the podcast. The NRC has ruled to freeze all nuclear reactor construction and operating licenses in the United States. The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission acted today, August 7, 2012, to put on hold at least 19 final reactor licensing decisions, nine construction and operating licenses, eight license renewals, one operating license, and one early site permit. This in response to the landmark waste confidence rule decision of June 8 by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Washington, D.C. Circuit. On June 8th, the court threw out the NRC rule that permitted licensing and relicensing of nuclear reactors based on the supposition that, first, the NRC will find a way to dispose of spent reactor fuel to be generated by reactors at some time in the future when it becomes necessary, and secondly, in the meantime, spent fuel can be stored safely at reactor sites. The court noted that the NRC has no long-term plan other than hoping for a geologic repository. It also concluded that the NRC had not shown that catastrophic fires in spent fuel pools were so unlikely that their risks could be ignored. The NRC action was sought in a June 18, 2012 petition filed by 24 groups urging the NRC to respond to the court ruling by freezing final licensing decisions until it had completed a rulemaking action on the environmental impacts of highly radioactive nuclear waste in the form of spent or used reactor fuel storage and disposal. Diane Curran, an attorney representing some of the groups in the Court of Appeals case, said, that study should have been done years ago, but the NRC just kept kicking the can down the road. With today's commission decision, we are hopeful that the agency will undertake the serious work. San Luis Obispo Mothers for Peace spokesperson Jane Swanson noted Mothers for Peace in 1973, as part of its challenge of the original operating license for the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant, argued that the Atomic Energy Commission, predecessor of the NRC, should not allow the generation of radioactive wastes without knowing how to isolate those wastes from the environment. Now... 39 years later. The NRC has been forced by the federal court to acknowledge this necessity. In San Diego on August 1st, Citizens' Oversight Projects submitted a set of 87 questions to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission regarding the recent steam generator failures at San Onofre and the Augmented Inspection Team report released on July 18th. The submissions included a number of stunning revelations not previously addressed by the NRC or other oversight groups. Among them are, the steam generator tubes were reduced in thickness by 10.4%. When applied to all tubes in the generator, that means about 11 tons of steel were removed from the tube bundle, making them substantially thinner, weaker, and subject to increased vibration. To allow a net amount of 8 tons of steel to be removed from the design must, by any measure of common sense, require review and approval by the regulating agency, meaning the NRC. No restart of the reactors should be allowed with these very thin, weak, and vibrating tubes. The oft-quoted leak rate of the broken tube is 75 gallons a day. However, the leak increased in size 40% within the first hour after it showed up. Prior to shutdown, it was estimated to have increased to 105 gallons a day as its rate. The leak was rapidly expanding, and if it was allowed to grow, may have quickly resulted in complete failure of that tube and possible injury to other adjacent tubes. The operators of the reactor handled the accident very well. This failure did not represent operator human error, but instead design errors and poor modeling, benchmarking, and mock-up testing. Ray Lutz, the primary investigator on this project at Citizens Oversight, said, If the plant is to be restarted, Nothing less than complete replacement of these faulty steam generators should be considered. The California Democratic Party's Executive Board meeting approved a resolution on San Onofre and what steps should be required before the plant can be restarted. No, that was not. Hell freezes over. The resolution read in part... The California Democratic Party calls for an independent design review prior to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's decision to permit a restart of either Unit 2 or 3 at San Onofre, culminating in an adjudicatory hearing by independent experts on whether it is safe to restart the San Onofre Nuclear Power Plant before the NRC makes a decision on whether to permit a restart of either units. Yes, that would be the right order. Do the study then decide whether it can be approved or not for restart. Monday, August 6th, marked the 66th anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. This insight is courtesy our friend Mokuzuki, who writes Fukushima Diary. According to the report of the Japanese government in August of 2011, only five months after the Fukushima disaster began, Fukushima reactors 1 through 3 emitted 168 times as much cesium 137 as the Hiroshima atomic bomb. So, in essence, 66 years after the first bomb was dropped, Japan dropped more than 168 Hiroshima atomic bombs on itself. Pressure is building on Prime Minister Noda in Japan. The vocal organizers of the Metropolitan Coalition Against Nukes was going to make a direct request and recommendations to Prime Minister Noda tomorrow, August 8, 2012. The Prime Minister's official residence says the Prime Minister agreed to meet representatives of citizens' organizations that have been protesting in front of the Prime Minister's official residence since March of this year. His office said he would meet for about 20 minutes so that he could explain to the boys and girls about national nuclear policy. In other words, this was perceived as nothing more than a photo op for both sides. The prime minister's office had agreed to netcast the meeting on their official website and even allow in reporters who are members of the Japan Press Club. According to the Metropolitan Coalition Against Nukes website, they have four recommendations for Prime Minister Noda. Stop the restart of the UI nuclear power plant. Never restart the nuclear power plants currently stopped for maintenance. Make it the national policy to decommission all nuclear power plants. And withdraw the appointment of commissioners for the Japanese Nuclear Regulatory Commission. But at the last minute, Prime Minister Noda postponed the meeting, and there is no word when it will be rescheduled. The Japanese government announced plans to decide on energy policy by the end of this month, August, but with support growing for 0% nuclear power option, it is considering postponing that deadline as well. Again Prime Minister Noda said he'll ask his ministers to clarify what issues lay ahead if the country should end its dependence on nuclear energy. Noda told reporters in Hiroshima on Monday that he wants to see a thorough discussion on the matter rather than rushing to reach a conclusion. He indicated that he won't insist on sticking to the government's initial target of the end of this month in deciding the country's new energy policy. The government has been holding public hearings nationwide as it reviews its energy policy, and the participants discussed three options for the ratio of nuclear power reliance as of 2030. Zero percent around 15% or between 20 to 25%. Many of the people attending have voiced support for the 0% option. Before the Fukushima disaster began, nuclear energy accounted for nearly 30% of Japan's total power generation. At this time, only two generators are currently online, the two that have been restarted at Ui, and there remain no reports of blackouts, rolling or otherwise. A team from the International Atomic Energy Agency has finally begun inspecting facilities at another nuclear plant in northeastern Japan to assess damage from last year's March 11 earthquake. The three reactors at the Onagawa plant, about 74 miles north of Fukushima Daiichi, suffered temblers that exceeded their design capacity and the basement of one of its reactor buildings flooded, though the plant was able to maintain its cooling capacity. The reactor shut down without any damage to their cores. Now, 17 months later, the IAEA is just getting around to inspecting them. And now, a look at how the media has been treating this very important story. Note the variation and the spin. According to NHK, which is a Japan newspaper, the headlines read, Cooling system at Onagawa Nuke Plant was flooded by tsunami. According to the Associated Press, basement was flooded in one of Onagawa's reactor buildings. And according to the Nuclear Energy Institute, flooding at facility was not a problem. The plant is situated high above the port city of Onagawa, so flooding at the facility was not a problem. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Always pay attention to the languaging and check more than one source. TEPCO has been found cheating on radiation levels by using improved monitoring posts. This was discovered by a Professor Kaneko of Keio University. He went to Itate with a survey meter in February of 2012 and quickly realized that the area surrounding the monitoring posts deliberately had been decontaminated to produce readings far below the actual radiation levels for the area. Surface soil had been replaced, and thick iron shielding had been placed below a monitoring post in Itate. As of June 12, 2012, it was reported that the monitoring posts only showed 24% to 39% of the actual radiation levels. At one post, the dose on the soil surface was lower than that of the air one meter above ground. It means they have laid clean, non-contaminated soil surrounding the monitoring post. A Japanese TV morning talk show reported that 31 out of 38 monitoring posts in six cities in Fukushima showed far lower radiation levels than the general actual levels for the areas where the monitoring posts are located. When they walk a few steps away from the monitoring posts, the radiation levels shoot up sharply by as much as double. TEPCO says the reasons for making such monitoring posts on decontaminated spots is to make it easier to detect a sudden increase in radioactive dispersion. That kind of thinking makes my head hurts. Or, as a blogger said, what is most protected in Fukushima is neither children nor pregnant women, but rather the monitoring posts and TEPCO's posterior. More radiation information. 300 times more than the cesium limit has been found in wild mushrooms about 80 miles away from Fukushima. Tochigi Prefecture announced on August 6, just yesterday, Monday, that 31,000 becquerels per kilogram of radioactive cesium was detected in wild tawny milk-cap mushrooms, which were harvested in Nikko City, about halfway between Fukushima and Tokyo. Even if you evacuate in Japan, you can't escape from the supply chain of the food. It's not only agricultural produce that is contaminated, but now the radiation is showing up in processed food. This also according to Mokuzuki of Fukushima Diary. A citizen's radiation measurement group measured 19.71 becquerels per kilogram of cesium in cereal. The cereal tested was all-brand flakes by Kellogg's. The product in Japan is comprised of 60% polished rice from the United States and 40% Japanese wheat. To give you an idea of what this means, the new safety limit, which of course has been rigged and pushed up just as a numbers game, but the new safety limit is 100 becquerels per kilogram of radioactive cesium in food. With the radiation reading in the cereal being just under 20 becquerels, It means that if you have a bowl of cereal every weekday morning for two weeks, you've had 100 becquerels and you are past the limit. Some information from the earliest days of nuclear hot seat remain relevant, profound, and important. Given today's decision by the NRC to freeze all nuclear reactor construction and operating licenses, I think it's important for you to understand the pivotal issue that caused this move. Nuclear waste creation, the lack of safe storage, and the ongoing risk we all face from radiation. So today we'll be revisiting an interview I conducted with Kevin Camps of Beyond Nuclear. It was recorded on a live Nuclear Hot Seat podcast on Tuesday, August 23rd of 2011. Everything Kevin spoke of in that podcast is still relevant today.
1: Kevin Camps is the guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat. And he has served as radioactive waste watchdog at Beyond Nuclear in Tacoma Park, Maryland, since 2007. Before that, he served in a similar role as nuclear waste specialist at Nuclear Information and Resource Service, NIRS, or NIRS as it's called, which is located in Washington, D.C. He did that as of 1999. Beyond Nuclear aims to educate and activate the public about the connections between nuclear power and nuclear weapons, and the need to abolish both to safeguard our future. Beyond Nuclear advocates for an energy future that is sustainable, benign, and democratic. Boy, are those three great words to see in connection with each other around energy. Kevin, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: You are a nuclear waste specialist and watchdog.
2: Tell us what that means. Well, we are an environmental organization, and we keep our eye on the nuclear power industry, both the weapons industry and the power industry, as well as the federal agencies uh, here in Washington, D.C., that are supposed to protect the public and the environment. And so uh, nuclear waste carries a lot of risk for the public, for the environment, and so we're trying to keep our eyes on that important issue and other related issues, the risks of the reactors at the nuclear power plants, the specifics of the risks of radiation to human health, and uh, my area of radioactive waste that is an inevitable byproduct from operating
1: atomic reactors. So we've touched upon these issues here, but give us a clear overview of the problems that we face because of nuclear
2: waste. Well, uh Uranium is a toxic heavy metal and uh, radioactive when it comes out of the earth in its natural form, but when it is uh, purified and concentrated and processed, enriched, and especially when it is used as reactor fuel and atoms are split, it comes out of a reactor a million times more radioactive than when it went in.
1: Wait a minute. Did you say a million times more radioactive?
2: that's a conservative estimate yes it is now deadly radioactive coming out of an atomic reactor so much so that it has to be put behind radiation shielding at all times any person who came in close contact to high-level radioactive waste just removed from a reactor would be killed by gamma radiation would receive a fatal dose in just seconds and even after decades of cooling in a uh, pool of water for example The radioactivity is so intense still in the form of gamma radiation that you could still get a fatal dose without radiation shielding in just a matter of minutes from a radiated fuel that's decades out of a reactor core.
1: So how much of this stuff is there out there hanging out, say, in the United States nuclear reactor world?
2: Well, on the commercial side, uh, those are the electricity generating reactors, and we have 104 still operating and about 25 that are permanently shut down. The United States has generated, since 1957, a grand total of about 65,000 metric tons of commercial irradiated nuclear fuel. And in addition, there is the nuclear weapons side of things. And over on that side, um, there's over 10,000 metric tons of high-level radioactive waste. So we already have 75,000 tons of high-level radioactive waste in this country, and it turns out that that would be enough to fill the first repository If we had one, we don't have a deep geologic repository. President Obama has wisely canceled the Yucca Mountain, Nevada, proposed dump site for high-level radioactive waste, which means uh, we're still searching for that first dump site, which is already full, even though we don't have it.
1: And why was the dump site canceled,
2: and when you said wisely canceled? It is geologically unsuitable to serve the purpose, and that was known from the very beginning by the Department of Energy. Back in the early 1980s, when they first looked at Yucca Mountains, they declared it one of the, the worst sites under consideration in the country. And the specifics are that the mountain, Yucca, is a seismic zone. There's a lot of earthquake activity there. In fact, there's two earthquake fault lines that directly pass through where the waste would be buried under Yucca Mountain, and then there's dozens more earthquake fault lines in the vicinity out to about 10 or 20 miles away. And so that rock at Yucca, which is called volcanic tuff, is uh, fractured, it's fissured, and those have created pathways, those cracks, for water to flow down. And it is an arid area in the current geologic era although there have been wet periods at Yucca going far enough back in time, and there will be again in the future. So any rain that falls at Yucca percolates down in large quantities, actually, and reaches the proposed burial site. That means the waste burial containers, which are simply made of things like steel, will corrode away and release their contents, which is this forever deadly radioactive waste. And then under Yucca is an aquifer, which is the drinking water supply and the irrigation water supply for a vibrant farming community downstream called Amargosa Valley, just 20 miles away. Beyond that, there are national wildlife refuges with endangered species. There is uh, a national park, and there's a Native American tribe, the Timbusha Shoshone, all of which use that water for their their lifeblood. That's what's at risk at Yucca Mountain. Unfortunately, the project has been canceled by President Obama.
1: You know, I'm struck, as you're saying this, by the number of sites for nuclear reactors and waste depositories and all of that that seem to have gone on the most seismically dangerous ground imaginable and that that has been the choice. Of course, here in California, we're dealing with San Onofre and Diablo Canyon, both of which are either on top of or very close to within five miles of major earthquake faults. It just strikes me that there's a complete lack of logic, rationale, perhaps sanity, when it comes to choosing the sites for all of these nuclear places. What do we do with this stuff? How can we store it? How can we get rid of it or neutralize it?
2: That is a very good question. The only good answer for radioactive waste is to not make it in the first place. But we have 75,000 tons of high-level radioactive waste in the United States. The consensus opinion, the consensus position of the environmental movement, and we have over 200 groups signed on to this idea, is what we call hardened on-site storage. It's a recognition that the wastes are very much at risk right now where they're at, which is at the reactor sites that generated them. They need to be better protected against accidents, against terrorist attacks, and against eventual uh, degradation with age and simple corrosion, which could release the Deadly materials into the environment. And so hardened on site storage uh, envisions fortifying the wastes against terrorist attacks, especially offloading the pools, which are full of waste. They're packed to the gills and very vulnerable. If you lose electricity, you lose the circulating water in the pool. The pool water could boil away and the waste could catch on fire. And pools are not located within containment structures like reactors are. So those would be direct releases to the environment of massive amounts of radioactivity so we're calling for the waste to be offloaded into outdoor dry cask storage like happens now but the dry casks have to be much better built they take so many shortcuts at this point on dry cask storage and they have to be fortified against attack they have to be better safeguarded against accidents and they need such basic safety systems as radiation monitors and heat monitors and
1: pressure monitors, all of which are lacking at the present time. What can we, the people, do to support moving our government, our elected officials, whatever the bureaucracy is, towards the adoption of these hardened on-site storage containers?
2: Well, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which could require this right away, is infamous for being in cahoots with the nuclear power industry that it's supposed to oversee. But Congress actually oversees the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And certain members of Congress, like U.S. Senator Barbara Boxer of California, are in a very powerful position. She's the chairwoman of the Environment and Public Works Committee with jurisdiction over NRC. So people who live in California could certainly contact Senator uh, Boxer's office and urge her to hold hearings on these issues, to invite environmentalists to the table as witnesses, which is very rare, almost never happens on Capitol Hill, to testify about the need for hardened on-site storage. And she could put a lot of pressure on the NRC to do this. She has done some good uh, work. She's held hearings about the Fukushima catastrophe and really held the Nuclear Regulatory Commission directors, the five commissioners, feet to the fire on certain things, but on this radioactive waste issue so far, uh, there hasn't been enough attention. And then folks who don't live in California, of course, their members uh, of the Senate could contact Senator Boxer, and so the pressure from ordinary Americans could make the difference on this issue on Capitol Hill.
1: Do you have any sample letters that we might be able to post on the Nuclear Hot Seat site?
2: Yeah, we sure do. Our website, which is beyondnuclear.org, is filled with ideas for taking action, including uh, sample letters. And in fact, I'm just now working on one, because uh, when Yucca was canceled, President Obama created what is called the Blue Ribbon Commission on America's Nuclear Future, which is a panel of 15 people who were supposed to come up with Plan B for the radioactive waste and they've come up with a lot of really bad ideas and so as we speak I'm working on sample letters and talking points that folks can use to comment to the Blue Ribbon Commission by its October 31st deadline once they finalize their policy recommendations that's going to influence legislation for decades to come on radioactive waste issues I am working through the 200 page draft of the Blue Ribbon Commission and The bad ideas include things like parking lot dumps on Native American reservations, uh, a new search for a dump site in the country. Any of those away from reactor plans would put this material on the roads, rails, and waterways, bringing it that much closer to millions of Americans with lots of risk associated with that. So I'm trying to boil down our pushback against these bad ideas, and I hope to have that done in the next few days.
1: There was perhaps a naive suggestion or two naive suggestions about remediation from radiation, and I just want to put them out for your input if you have any familiarity. Paul Stamets is a man who works with mushrooms. He did a talk on on, uh, one of the TED Talks and he talked about micro remediation of pollution. He was talking about heavy metals, but he since come forward and said that by planting certain forms of mushrooms, they could trap radiation or pull the um uh heavy metals out of the soil and make it so that normal life could take place. Do you have any familiarity with that or any comment on it?
2: Well, my comment is that certainly Chernobyl has shown that mushrooms do absorb radioactivity in a concentrated fashion. But the problem is that now the mushroom is radioactive waste. Hmm. So cautions would have to be taken. If your intent is to clean the soil for agricultural uses, let's say, and you use mushrooms to try to pull the radioactivity out of the soil, you have to be very careful with what happens with the mushrooms. And uh, a story from Chernobyl is indicative that uh, a program was set up not using mushrooms but using another plant to pull radioactivity out of farm fields hoping to salvage those fields and unfortunately the farmers were not educated as to how this was going to (laughs) work and so they fed the plants to their cattle and they ruined their cattle by doing that their dairy cattle and we've seen a similar thing happen not intentionally but by accident but through incompetence in Japan where rice holes used as hay or as straw for feeding beef cattle in Japan were radioactively contaminated, and that spread the radioactive contamination through the beef supply of Japan in a very bad way. And now beef has to be destroyed, and the same is happening with dairy cattle in Japan. So you'd have to be very careful how you went about such a, such a program.
1: And the other one, there was a book called First Contact by Mark Kaufman, and he was talking about signs on Earth that perhaps there have been extraterrestrial life that's come down. He's not talking aliens. He's just talking about life forms and pointed out in one section that there was a bacterium found in uh, mine shafts in South Africa, a bacterium that actually eats radiation. It uses that as its food and does not become radioactive itself. And I was wondering if anybody has looked into that as a possibility see if there's any use for it.
2: That I'm less familiar with. I am more familiar with microbes that were a danger at Yucca Mountain of actually uh, accelerating the corrosion of the waste burial containers again by breaking down the steel that they were made from. So I'm not familiar with microbes that can digest radioactivity.
1: Here's a question I've been asking many of the activists who have come on the podcast, and that is that there's a tremendous amount of personal stress that one faces when one is dealing with this information. I know I have faced it. I've talked with other nuclear activists who agree that at times it gets kind of dark and kind of rough to keep going forward in the face of what it is we're dealing with. I want to know what is it that you do to deal with the stress of the information that you face on a daily basis?
2: Yeah, it really uh, needs to involve balance in life, for sure, because these are such heavy and uh, traumatizing issues to know about, just to know about, let alone to try to do something about, which is so important. And so um, pacing oneself, having balance in life, it's a a constant struggle for me. I've been doing this for nearly 20 years now, and you can sure see the toll taken in a place like Washington, D.C., on colleagues of mine uh, at other organizations, uh, where I've worked at Beyond Nuclear and at Nuclear Information Resource Service, we kind of stand out as an exception because the folks at these organizations tend to stay on for a very long time in these positions, but at other environmental groups in town, you can really see burnout because there's a lot of uh, movement away, <laughs> you know, short stints by folks, and then new people come in to take their place. So. It's a very uh, real issue, and I'm reminded of a book by Joanna Macy written a long time ago, probably 25 years ago at this point, called Despair and Personal Power in the Nuclear Age, and it was about uh, the nuclear weapons risk and anti-nuclear weapons activism, but it certainly applies to nuclear power issues as well. It talked about the spiritual side of things that needs to be a part of, of the work we do, And an interesting connection, Uh, Joanna Macy is also the originator of a concept called the Nuclear Guardianship Project. She's a, uh, a Buddhist scholar, especially on Tibetan Buddhism, and her point with the Nuclear Guardianship Project was that This forever deadly material. I mentioned the acute risks from gamma radiation over the first centuries that are posed by irradiated fuel, but um, things like plutonium-239 remain hazardous for 500,000 years into the future. You have to get it inside of you somehow, ingest it, inhale it, but that's the long-term risk of high-level radioactive waste, are these very long-lived hazards like plutonium-239. Her nuclear guardianship Project talks about a uh, an idea like Tibetan Buddhism, where wisdom and knowledge is passed from one generation to the next over millennia. So Tibetan Buddhism is a uh, is a religion that is 5,000 years old. I'm not an expert on this, but she points out that our guarding this nuclear waste will have to entail a very similar system where knowledge and wisdom is transmitted from one generation to the next for thousands of human generations into the future to try to keep this material out of the living environment.
1: It's almost like having a monastery and monks who of both sexes who will pass the information along and have the guardianship of this uh, very dangerous material.
2: That's exactly her point. That's exactly her proposal. And, uh, you know, it almost feels, you mentioned, you know, the, the heaviness of this, this work. It almost feels like we are the first generations of that effort.
1: An interesting perspective on it, Kevin. If there is anything that we can do, first of all, why don't you give us your website again? It's
2: www.beyondnuclear.org.
1: And again, if we were to give you support, props, beyond that, what else can we do to support you?
2: There are great groups on the ground all over the country. And so you could contact us through the website there, or my email address is kevin at And I can put you in touch with the groups on the ground wherever you happen to live, because we have 104 operating reactors in this country. The reactors are a risk. The radioactive wastes on site are a risk. We have 25 permanently shut down reactors where the wastes are still a risk on site you could plug into those local groups and get involved. And there's uh, so much going on and so many good fights to jump into. And that's the hope that I really cling to is there's a lot of good news, too. I mean, you look at Germany, and right after Fukushima, the conservative prime minister announced a phase-out of nuclear power by 2022. That didn't happen overnight. It was not uh, her wisdom that led to that decision. It was her political survival that required it. Because of 30 years or more of anti-nuclear activism in Germany, that led up to that moment. And Fukushima was the final straw. But that's the hope, is that we can recreate uh, such a movement here in the United States. And the beginnings of it are all over the place. Folks who have stayed at it for
1: decades fighting their local atomic reactors. That gives great hope because sometimes the big picture is too big to wrap one's head around, but local activism can make a difference, and it can start as locally, as I've said on this program, with your neighborhood council, with your local government, with your water board. There are a lot of strategies, and we will continue to discuss them on this podcast. In the meantime, Kevin Camps from Beyond Nuclear, thank you so much for your time and your information. Thanks so much for that.
0: Before we get to our holistic healing and radiation protection tip for the day, I need to remind you that this information is offered for information and educational purposes only and is not intended to be a recommendation of foods to eat, supplements to take, treatments to engage in, or any sort of medically related advice. For that, you need to see a doctor, nutritionist, or other licensed professional. So here's the information. As we get older, it's harder to digest the foods we eat. But yeast is extremely easy to digest and offers a lot of health benefits. What's important in terms of radiation treatment is that it contains large proportions of nucleic acids, which are necessary in repairing the body from exposure to radiation. In fact, yeast is given to cancer patients undergoing radiation and chemotherapy treatment. That means it's intentionally given to people subject to radiation to help them recover from it. Yeast is extremely helpful for radiation from a preventive, detoxification, and physical rebuilding aspect. Russian researchers have reported that radiation damage could be influenced favorably by yeast, which they found after Chernobyl could help rebuild and regenerate cells damaged by radiation. Beer yeast, in particular, prevented an entire list of symptoms usually associated with acute radiation syndrome, including skin redness, hair loss, depression, inflammation of the mucous membranes in the throat and gullet, and other nuclear radiation damage. Yeast has a strong smell and a strong taste, but it can be made quite palatable by mixing it with tomato juice or a mixed vegetable juice. So here's a final thought. It's easy to be a digital activist. Post some links, sign a petition, type in some outrage on a Facebook post. Hey, no sweat. It's all there at your fingertips. But where we need activists is in the analog world. You remember the analog world? Real world reality? Physical bodies in real space? Demonstrators in the streets? In Japan, recent demonstrations against nuclear drew an estimated 200,000 people putting themselves out there to say, sakato Handai, no restart for the offline reactors. Take the restarted ui reactors offline. Zero nuclear in Japan. The last demonstration I attended in Los Angeles drew maybe 50 people to the Tokyo Embassy. The largest demonstration was at San Onofre, and we only had about 250 people at the most. Folks, this ain't going to do it. We need bodies. We need voices. We need you. Which brings me to what you can do. Can standing for Coalition Against Nukes and the Rally for a Nuclear Free Future. Three days of actions in the belly of the beast, Washington, D.C. We've got demos. We've got world-class speakers. We've got a parents' and children's demonstration against nuclear. We've got occupiers for a nuclear-free world, petitions being presented to the Japanese and Indian embassies, speakers, musicians, poets, artists. This is an in-gathering of people dedicated to taking nukes out of our lives. It's going to be held in Washington, D.C. this September 20th through 22nd, six weeks from now. If you're thinking of attending, or even if you're not thinking of attending, I want you to think of attending. And if you live a good distance away, now is the time to go online and snag a good airfare. If you're within 200 miles of D.C., you can drive, and you've got to get yourself there. CoalitionAgainstNukes.org has a list of cheap housing options, as little as $5 per person per night. So you can get there, you can make it cost-effective, carpool, just go. And if you can't get there physically, get busy now. We're holding a briefing for Congress, people, and we need you, yes you, to write a letter to your senators and representatives urging them to attend this briefing, not to send their aides. We need them, the kahuna who is most likely up for reelection six weeks after our event. On the Coalition Against Nukes website, you will find a sample letter that you can use. Copy it out, fill in the blanks, sign your name, get it out into the world to your representative and your senators. We also need people to make phone calls to groups on the ground in the D.C. area, college campus groups, environmental groups, parents groups to get those families, especially with small children, out there. So take those unlimited long-distance service plans you've got and put them to good use we need action. We need worker bees. And anyone who does anything to help will help get nuclear taken out of the equation for ourselves and our future generations. We've just had a big honking piece of good news today, which comes after decades of work by dedicated activists. Now is your time to join them, support them, do everything you can to help get thousands of people on the ground in DC. So The Congress sees and pays attention, and mainstream media pays attention, picks up the story, and lets other people see it. Don't think that you're powerless. Don't think that you can't make a difference because you can. All I ask you to do now is to go to coalitionagainstnukes.org, click on the tabs, any of the tabs, explore it. There's great information there. And once you find yourself getting at least a little bit excited about what you can do, volunteer to help. Remember, the planet and the genetic future you save will be your own. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, August 7, 2012. You can find us posted on nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog, which is where the archive is kept of all the past podcasts as well. You can also find us on Facebook, on both the group and the regular Nuclear Hot Seat page, and you can subscribe on iTunes podcasts. Feel free to share our link and forward the download to just about anybody in your life. And if you have an idea for a speaker, a topic, or any other way to improve Nuclear Hot Seat, send me an email, info at nuclearhotseat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heart History Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call now. Whatever you do, don't go back to sleep.